Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. And welcome to season two of the Radical AI podcast. We hope that you all have had a wonderful and restful holiday season, and we are ready to hit the ground running in this new year with this new season. And we have a lot of exciting news for all of you, so make sure you stay tuned to our intros, our outros, and our Twitter and LinkedIn for some exciting announcements to be coming up. And some of those announcements are uh, external, so future partnerships that we might be a part of, that we will be a part of, um, <laughs> that we, we're not announcing quite yet. Uh, some of them are more internal. Um, so we have some interns, uh, two interns coming on board, and uh, we will announce their names uh, and a little of about, about the projects that they will be working on shortly. And some of our changes are actually a little bit structural, and we're changing things up a bit in the way that we ask the questions in the interviews that we're conducting. So if you've been around since the beginning of the podcast, about nine months, ago, you probably noticed that with every guest on this show, we have asked them to define for us what they think the word radical means. And if they situate their work, their research, their thoughts within the realm of radical AI. And this was a part of our effort to co-define radical AI with this community. And if you want to hear more about our thoughts and some of our initial findings, you should definitely check out the video that we created at the end of 2020 as well as our debrief in our New Year's episode. The New Year's Spectacular. <laughs> yes, it's called the New Year's Spectacular episode, as you will discover if you listen to the episode. <laughs> because it's spectacular. It was pretty spectacular. <laughs> but for this upcoming season, we are shifting the narrative a little bit, and we're going to focus less on specifically and explicitly asking our guests to define what radical means to them. And instead, we're going to be focusing more on community building and collective storytelling. Since this interview was conducted several months ago, it was actually the last interview where we asked one of our guests to define the term radical AI in their own words to us. So this will actually be the last episode that we air where we do ask this question explicitly to one of our guests. What you can expect from this upcoming season of the podcast is more attention on events, stories, case studies, and experiences that we believe fall under the umbrella of radical AI as we are continuing to co-define this term with our community. And a large part of that is uh, some of the feedback that we heard about the needs of folks who are listening around accessibility and around a deeper understanding of, of some of these issues uh, and how they impact us um, and impact our communities. And so our hope is that in the spirit of that um, accessibility, we focus more in on these events and these stories and these case studies, um, because we believe that by sharing those, we can continue to build community and then also uh, make uh, the biggest impact right on uh, the lives of all of you. And speaking of accessibility, in this episode, we interview Meredith Ringel Morris, a computer scientist conducting research in the areas of human-computer interaction, computer-supported cooperative work, social computing, and accessibility. Her current research focus is on accessibility, particularly on the intersection of accessibility and social technologies. 
And we are just so excited to start this new season with this interview and to share it right now with all of you. We're on the line today with Mary Morris. How are you doing today, Mary? Good, thanks. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Uh, we were wondering if you could just get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what motivates you to do the research that you do. Sure. So I am a research scientist at Microsoft, and I lead the interaction, accessibility, and mixed reality research areas. And I founded Microsoft's ability research team uh, several years ago, which looks to combine innovations in human computer interaction and artificial intelligence uh, to enhance everyone's capabilities and particularly to take a user centered approach to meeting the needs of people with disabilities with respect to emerging technologies. And for you, why was it important to start uh, doing that work or has that always been kind of your career trajectory to work on uh, accessibility and ability in general? The US Census indicates that one in five Americans has a disability. And so uh, like many people, uh, I have uh, many uh, close family members who have experienced disability in their lives. Um, and that's something that has been a part of my life. Um, and so uh, I don't wanna go into anyone else's personal health information in too much detail, but um, that's been something influential in my life. And that's one of the many reasons that I think uh, doing work in this space is important. And where did the technology come into all of this? Because you're doing specifically disability and ability research through technology and technologies like AI. And so what made you interested in that uh, portion uh, or that section of this uh, field? So I um, got into computer science as an undergraduate in college, sort of by accident. Um, I actually took an intro computer science course because on my college tour uh, at Brown University, uh, the tour guide told us that one of the professors, Andy Van Dam, had helped make the movie Toy Story by Pixar, which at the time in the 90s, that was a really popular movie. And I was excited about that. So I just decided to take his class for that reason. And then I found that I really was excited about the problem solving aspects of programming. Um, and I got more involved with computer technology. Uh, but I have to admit, I like people more than I like computers. You know, I see computers not as interesting for their own sake, but as interesting as tools that can help people uh, do things, that can help people uh, have meaningful social relationships, that can help people be more productive in their professional and educational lives, um, and that can help people live more complete and fulfilling lives. And that's one of the reasons that I think the area of accessible technology is particularly interesting. It's looking at uh, an important application area of technology that has uh, impact on society. So I come from a social sciences background and Jess comes from more of a computer science background, but then we're both in this space doing some level of human computer interaction work or information science work. And I, I know that you are kind of at the forefront of HCI in general as a field. And for folks who don't really know 
that those worlds can kind of intermingle. Um, I was wondering if you could say more about just human-computer interaction as a field and some of the questions that it asks. Yes, yeah, so this is a great question. Human-computer interaction um, has many different disciplines that come together to take a user-centered approach to uh, designing, building, and evaluating technology. So for example, I come from a more traditional computer science background, and a lot of the contributions that I make in the area of HCI are around uh, developing novel systems and interaction techniques. Uh, but many of my colleagues come from different backgrounds like psychology and cognitive science, um, which uh, focus more on, you know, uh, for example, ethnographic studies to understand uh, users' needs uh, deeply or developing new methodologies for evaluating technology in a user-centered way. Um, the ability team at Microsoft Research includes people from a variety of backgrounds. Um, so, for example, while my doctorate's in computer science, we have people on the team with uh, cognitive science PhDs, mechanical engineering PhDs, uh, information science PhDs. Um, so it's really a diverse group of people. Maybe it would help our listeners a little bit if we got specific about some of the work that you're doing with the ability team and then also in uh, Microsoft Research's Enable group. And I'm wondering if there's a specific project right now, I, I think you mentioned you're leading a project on AI fairness and disability um, that you could just explore and explain a bit to our listeners. Absolutely. So the Abilities Team's project on AI fairness and disability is examining how issues around responsible AI uh, particularly impact people with disabilities. So that includes things like ensuring that mainstream AI tools are inclusively designed so that they work correctly for everyone, regardless of their disability status. Uh, it also means thinking particularly about uh, accessibility-oriented or assistive AI technologies, uh, making sure that these are designed in a human-centered way so that they're solving problems that really matter to end users, uh, and also includes thinking about making sure that AI practitioners are following inclusive design processes when they develop and evaluate emerging technologies and proactively considering issues around how AI uh, relates to disability status, health, and age. Why is this work necessary? Um, like, was there an impetus for this? Was there maybe a, a case study of responsible AI gone wrong? Um, or what, what's what's driving this work? So um, I've been uh, thinking about this topic for the past few years, and I've identified uh, seven areas that I think are particularly worth uh, examining through the lens of, of disability. And some of these uh, areas, in fact, most of these areas, I think, apply to AI fairness across all demographics, but offer particularly uh, nuanced challenges around disability. Um, so the first is inclusion. Um, uh, as has been brought up by, by other researchers, many of whom have already been on this podcast, um, it's become very well known in the past few years that uh, representation and inclusion in the data sets used to train and test AI systems, as well as on the teams that are developing AI, um, is important to make sure that AI works for uh, people from different ethnicities, people with uh, varied gender identities, people from uh, the developing world, uh, as well as um, 
risk in the West. Um, and this issue also holds true for uh, characteristics like disability status and age. And I think it's particularly challenging to think about inclusion in data sets with something like disability because of uh, the long tail of disability, right? Uh, unlike, um, you know, th there, there are a large number of different disabling conditions that uh, all have, you know, relatively low proportion in, in the population. And so in some sense, even if uh, one were to ensure that uh, people with disabilities are represented in training data, they might still always be viewed as statistical outliers uh, by current ML systems. And so understanding uh, how to address this, I think is, is a big challenge for the ML community. The second uh, issue that I think is important to think about is the issue of bias. Um, again, you know, this has come up in other demographic domains, the idea that AI systems might amplify biases uh, that uh, marginalized groups already experience in our society. Um, and again, particularly with respect to disability and health information, uh, this, this is quite challenging. For example, uh, even today, AI systems can already infer from public information someone's health or disability status. You know, there was a study uh, that showed that from uh, people's mouse movements on a web page, uh, one could infer whether they might be in the early stages of Parkinson's disease. And you know, is it ethical to even build systems like this? And you know, how might these systems be used? Are these systems going to be used to uh, charge people different rates for health insurance or even deny them insurance? Are they going to be used to discriminate in uh, employment and hiring? Um, will they be used to uh, you know, determine what level of benefits people receive from the government? I think uh, these issues are, are quite uh, important to proactively address. And many of these issues can't only be addressed uh, through technology, uh, but must be addressed perhaps through policy as well. Uh, the third area that I think is important to consider is privacy. Um, and again, with respect to something like health information, um, unlike other demographic characteristics, which uh, may or may not be more, more public, uh, for people to at least make uh, educated guesses about. Uh, many aspects of, of disability and health status are often uh, private. For example, people talk about the concept of an invisible disability. Um, someone you know, might not uh, know, let's say, uh, whether you have uh, epilepsy or ADHD or uh, mental health concerns. Um, so, if you think back, for example, to the first issue around inclusion and representation in data sets, many people with uh, hidden or invisible disabilities may not want to contribute data and metadata uh, because it would require disclosure and, and have privacy risks. Um, and so you get this sort of catch-22 uh, where the, the privacy concerns uh, further amplify the, the inclusion problems and create a really complicated uh, feedback cycle to address. Um, and of course, related to privacy, I think also some of the techniques that are used to try to preserve uh, anonymity in data sets uh, may not be effective for people from uh, 
disability groups that have a relatively low number. So for example, thinking of some of our own work, we've done quite a bit of work on communication systems for people with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, the incidence of ALS in the United States is about one in 50,000 adults. So for example, if we are conducting uh, studies to understand how to create better predictive speech technologies to be used by people with ALS, and the Seattle metro area has maybe 3 million people, so uh, one in 50,000, uh, you're talking maybe like 30, 40, 50 people in the Seattle metro area, if we've interviewed uh, 20 of them, and even if we're anonymizing our data and saying, well, we interviewed 20 adults, you know, in this age group or of this gender, someone could probably figure out who, who they were. And so I think uh, these kinds of concerns take on a special significance when we start to talk about disability. Uh, the fourth issue uh, is error. So there is always going to be error in the in AI systems, right? Uh, you know, with deep learning, a, a lot of these systems are really improving. We've seen, you know, exponential improvements in the capability of AI in the past few years, but there will always be mistakes and there will be always be errors. And particularly uh, for certain disability groups who cannot verify the output of an AI system with their own senses. So for example, think about someone who is blind, who's using an AI vision to language system to describe their environment. You know, they cannot verify the output of that system by themselves. Or someone who is deaf, who's using AI-based uh, captions to understand, uh, say, a video call, they cannot verify that output by themselves. And so how do we uh, convey this error to the end user in a way that's understandable by end users. And I think this is, you know, this metric of being understandable by end users is really important because right now, especially with many deep learning systems, the error isn't even understandable by the, the AI developers themselves. And now we want to convey it to lay people who cannot verify the output uh, with their own senses. And, uh, and maybe using the system for safety critical tasks. If, if someone who's blind is going to rely on a vision to language system to uh, scan their environment and decide whether it's safe to cross the street, what level of error is acceptable uh, in that scenario? Um, and how do we encourage uh, end users to have appropriate skepticism about the capability of AI? In our research, we have found that uh, people are overly trusting of the output of AI systems, even when the output makes uh, little sense, frankly. Um, and so I think this is really a topic of concern for this demographic. Uh, the next area that I uh, have concerns about is expectation setting about the near-term capabilities of AI systems. Again, particularly when you think about vulnerable de demographics uh, whose lives and quality of life stand to fundamentally be changed by advances in AI, I am you know, quite concerned about the way that I see the popular media uh, reporting on advances in AI, uh, whether it's to create clickbait headlines or out of fundamental misunderstandings um, about the current state of the art. Uh, but for example, in this space, I literally get one email a week uh, about uh, sign language technologies because of frequent articles that appear in the media uh, that 
seem to promise that uh, AI technologies that can translate between sign language and English either already exist or are on the cusp of release. Um, and frankly, most of these technologies that are being reported on are what I would refer to as well-intentioned uh, toy systems that are created by people who are not deaf themselves, who are not signers, uh, who sign language. And so, for example, you'll see an article that will report on a new uh, app that can translate 26 individual signs into English. And, you know, if I told you I made a French to English translation app that could translate 26 words of French into English, uh, you would not be very impressed. And so I think uh, people are misled uh, reading these articles about what the uh, state of the art is for technologies that might, might impact them. And that is a, an ethical uh, concern that we should be aware of as a community. Another concern uh, that I think has particular impacts for people with disabilities is the issue of synthetic or simulated data. So again, you know, going back to the earlier issue around inclusion and representation in data sets, in the ML community now, there are many techniques for uh, artificially synthesizing more variety in data as a maybe cheaper and more scalable uh, method for uh, enhancing the variety of a data set. And, and there are studies that show that synthetic data can create improvements. Uh, but I think around disability in particular, there are a lot of sensitivities around disability simulation. So there are studies that show um, that, first of all, simulating disability is not is not the same in terms of the kinds of data you get. So if you were to say, put a blindfold on someone and ask them to perform a task, the way they do that task is not the same as someone who has been blind for years or for their, their whole life. Um, and not only is the data not of the same quality, um, but simulating disability often uh, leads people who participate in those simulations to form uh, negative um, stereotyped opinions about the capabilities of people with, with disabilities. Um, and for example, you know, in my work, one place where I've come across uh, some of these problematic issues in simulation is in our work on um, communication technologies uh, where predictive language can be very important. Um, there aren't uh, realistic public corpora available of text uh, produced by AAC uh, technology users. And so a lot of the language models are trained on existing public corpora like, you know, the New York Times. And of course, you know, most people don't speak in, in the grammar and cadence of a New York Times article, so that's maybe not ideal. And so I know of some well-intentioned researchers who decided to address this problem uh, by asking crowd workers on Mechanical Turk to imagine that they were a disabled person who spoke via an augmentative uh, technology and generate sentences that they thought they might say. And now many other people use this simulated corpus, but if you actually look at this corpus, it's full of uh, very stereotyped depictions of what uh, people with disabilities might talk about. Um, will you take me to the doctor? Will you get me a blanket? Will you make me some soup? Uh, so it's. Uh, you know, of course, you know, people with disabilities do need to talk about health concerns, uh, but they also want to talk about everything else in the world, right? They want to talk about gardening and Star Trek and politics and their family. And so I am uh, quite concerned about the use of synthetic data for this population. 
Um, and then the last thing that I would mention is issues around social acceptability of emerging AI technologies. Um, and again, particularly how that interacts with disability status. So for example, many uh, emerging technologies that might greatly benefit people with disabilities uh, have impacts on uh, what I would call secondary users. So let's uh, take an example of something like Google Glass. Right, so Google Glass has you know a camera and a microphone on it, and uh, that might be very important. So someone who has low vision, the camera with you know AI uh, algorithms from computer vision could be helping that person identify objects in their environment as an assistive device. Or if someone has a cognitive disability. Um, Perhaps that uh, camera is, you know, helping them remember the names of people that go with faces that they see as they pass them on the street. Or if someone is hard of hearing, maybe that device is automatically uh, using speech recognition technology to provide them with real-time captioning. Uh, but of course, that device also has privacy implications uh, for the people who are being captured. And there are studies like from the University of Colorado that show that people are more tolerant. Uh, for example, if someone using Google Glass, if they know that it's because that person has a disability. Uh, but what does that mean? Does that mean that people with disabilities are required to publicly disclose their disability status in order to use emerging AI technologies? Uh, does it mean that uh, the benefits um, of uh, the technology to the person with disabilities outweigh the privacy concerns of other people in the public? And these are challenging questions and I don't know uh, what all the answers are, uh, but I think they're very important for us to have serious conversations about. If you would like to learn a little bit more about the seven principles that Mary just shared, or if you would like to explore a little bit deeper into this work, don't forget that you can always do this by visiting our website at RadicalAI.org and checking out the show notes for this interview and for all of our interviews. Now, back to our interview with Meredith Ringel Morris. When you were uh, talking, I was brought back to, um, I, was a, I was a child of the 90s, so early 90s going to elementary school, um, and had a very particular education around disability, and especially around language, and it, there was so much just like stigma and a lack of understanding and a lack of even knowing what the language was that we were supposed to be using around some of these issues. Um, and I'm wondering if you could speak just briefly to how, when you say disability, a little more of like what, what you mean so that we're all kind of speaking the same language. Yeah, so again, and first again, as a caveat, you know, I personally do not identify as being disabled. And I think that it's important that uh, people with disabilities uh, often have their own preferences for language and how they would like to be identified and uh, respecting people's individual choices. I know there's a lot of debate back and forth around, for example, uh, people first language versus identity first language and different people have different preferences. Uh, I often use people first language when I'm not familiar with someone's own preference um, as, as a fallback, but uh, I think, you know, that's something important to be aware of. Uh, often uh, in terms of uh, discussing just like what falls into the scope of the disability space, which I think is also part of your question, um, 
there are several different categories of, of disability that we often think about. So one are uh, sensory disabilities. Uh, so for example, uh, vision loss, hearing loss would fall into that category. Um, limited uh, mobility. So for example, uh, people who rely on mobility aids, um, people who have uh, uh, maybe uh, limb differences, prosthetics, amputation would fall into uh, that kind of category. Um, also differences in uh, strength or, or tremor uh, might fall into that category as well. Um, another category are uh, speech disabilities. Um, so for example, our work on augmentative and alternative communication technologies uh, benefits people with speech disabilities. Uh, cognitive disability. Um, so think, for example, of uh, learning disabilities like dyslexia or um, autism spectrum disorder or ADHD could all fall under the frame of cognitive differences. Uh, intellectual disability um, is another area and that, of course, um, technology for intellectual disability brings up a whole issue of additional ethical considerations around uh, consent uh, for uh, whether or not people can give informed consent for giving data or participating in technology research um, at all. Um, and then um, also, of course, it's important to recognize that many of these categories of disability uh, are not experienced in isolation, right? So people may uh, experience uh, conditions that, that impact these across different places. So ALS is an example where uh, people with ALS uh, often experience both limited mobility as well as uh, speech disabilities because of, of losing uh, motor control over their speech. Um, another category that often uh, falls under disability are mental health concerns, so uh, PTSD, uh, depression, anxiety. Um, and then more broadly, um, often people will characterize, uh, for example, chronic uh, health concerns uh, under disability as well, um, as well as concerns related to aging. Um, I think aging is, is one area that hasn't been considered extensively with respect to AI. For example, uh, how many of the AI data sets that people rely on right now include uh, representation of older adults, particularly when we consider oldest old adults like in uh, the 80s and beyond. Um, and I think this is very important because uh, older adults um, just as part of the natural aging process have characteristics that may really impact the way AI systems work. So for example, most older adults uh, speak at a slower cadence. So how does this impact uh, speech recognition systems or older adults have a slower gait in walking? How does that impact um, you know, uh, body tracking systems that might be used, uh, for instance, by self-driving cars to, to recognize pedestrians. Um, so I think thinking about uh, older adults, even though many older adults may not self-identify as disabled is, is very important and relevant to this conversation. One concern around the issue of uh, stigma is that relates again to the social acceptability of AI technologies is actually end users' uh, willingness to use a technology. Um, you know, for example, does using the technology mark them as uh, different in some way? And sometimes 
that can be helpful. So for example, um, if a, a person who's blind is using a white cane, uh, the visibility and, and recognized meaning of the white cane um, is actually often very helpful um, so that, uh, you know, people have expectations around, you know, how quickly that person, you know, might cross the street or, um, you know, moving out of the way, uh, for example, of that, that person's path. Um, but, you know, sometimes that that recognition that you are blind might be undesirable. For example, if you are um, in a, a new city and it's evening and you're concerned about being mugged, you know, a, a mugger might be more likely to, you know, approach you because they see the cane and recognize that that you might be more vulnerable. And so I think that, that while the cane is an example of a low tech. Uh, technology, those same considerations about the visibility um, of a technology and whether it's recognized as an assistive technology versus a mainstream technology uh, is important uh, for uh, consideration, um, as well as how um, the idea of whether something is a mainstream technology versus like a medical device also impacts cost, uh, which can impact whether a technology is, you know, truly democratized and available for everyone, uh, or whether it's a specialized uh, technology that might be unaffordable to people who need it. On this topic of technologies that help augment people's lives who are experiencing disability. I'm really interested in the work that the Enable Group is doing. And uh, on their website, one of the taglines is to improve the lives of people with disabilities. And I'm wondering if you have any examples of projects or technologies that um, are helping to improve people's lives that have taken these concerns that you were just mentioning into consideration. So just to clarify, there are two uh, teams within uh, Microsoft uh, Research and Incubations that do work related to accessibility. So one is the ability team and the other is the enable team that you mentioned. Um, they are separate. So the enable team is focused on uh, two specific projects. Uh, one is eye gaze based uh, interaction uh, for people who experience limited mobility. And the other is a navigation app called Soundscape um, for using um, directional audio beacons uh, for people who are blind or have low vision for uh, pedestrian navigation. Um, whereas the ability team's focus is um, a bit uh, further out in, in industrial research speak, more H3 uh, research uh, that has a much uh, broader scope. And so the AI fairness work falls under the purview of the ability team. One uh, current project in the ability team that I think is quite relevant to this issue of AI, um, responsible AI, is around automated image descriptions that might be uh, useful for people who are blind or have low vision. So uh, typically, if an image is appearing um, on the web, in social media, in an office document, uh, it requires metadata called alt text or alternative text so that a screen reader can uh, read aloud that alt text or that caption of an image uh, so that it can be consumed uh, by someone with a print disability, usually someone who is blind. And uh, in theory, content authors should be providing alt text for all images that they're putting online, uh, but typically this doesn't happen. So recent studies indicate that about half of 
images online um, on websites, for instance, have alternative text on social media. It's much less. We studied uh, Twitter uh, last year and fewer than one tenth of one percent of images on Twitter had alt text attached to them. Um, and then, of course, this isn't even considering the quality of the alternative text. Uh, many people either because they're not understanding what alt text is for uh, or because they're just trying to uh, game the system for search engine optimization will fill in very low quality alt text like a file name or the word image. So AI technology could substantially improve the accessibility of images, uh, for example, by using uh, new vision to language technologies to provide these kinds of details. Um, and some, some of the issues that our team is looking at in this space, for instance, are, um, are these AI technologies providing the kinds of details that actually matter uh, to people who are blind? Um, and so, for instance, some of the interesting things we've learned by taking this user-centered approach are that um, one, uh, many of the details people are interested in are uh, not in the realm of what current AI systems can do today. For example, explaining whether an image is humorous or not and why, or explaining the aesthetic qualities of an image. You know, is this image, you know, beautiful? Does it evoke nostalgia and, and sadness? Um, also uh, providing more detail. And, and this also suggests opportunities for new interactive techniques. This is where some of the HCI comes in. You know, different users might want different levels of detail about an image, depending on their personal interests and the context in which they're consuming an image. So maybe I'm really interested in fashion and I always want the, the clothing of people in an image described to me. Um, you know, this I think is really, um, different for different people. And if the same image appears in different contexts, should the AI system provide different kinds of detail? If an image appears in a news article versus on Twitter versus in my electronic textbook, you know, how does that change uh, what sort of caption should be provided? And then, of course, we get to the issue of, you know, error um, and how should uh, the systems be conveying error in image descriptions uh, to end users so that they can trust these uh, descriptions. This is really fascinating because in order to build these systems and make them better, it all comes back to data, right? Like you need more data to build these systems. But then you mentioned in your seven ethical concerns earlier that in order to get that data, there's problems with, you know, synthetic and simulated data, but there's also not a ton of data to collect because there's only a certain percentage of the population that you can collect this data from. And you don't want to only collect it from them because there's privacy concerns. So how do you walk that line between making good technologies that are inclusive and also uh, making sure that you take those ethical considerations into account. So this is a, an ongoing uh, challenge. Um, I think one uh, example that I think is a great example of a correct step in this direction uh, is some of the work from Carnegie Mellon University and UT Austin. I'm thinking of folks like Jeff Bigum, Anhang Guo, Donna Garari, who are creating the VizWiz dataset. Um, and the VizWiz dataset is a public dataset of photographs that are captured by people who are blind or have low vision that they have consented to uh, share publicly for research, as well as uh, the questions that uh, they have about the contents of those photographs. And I think that that's a really interesting example because again, if we go back to the scenario 
um, not just of describing uh, alt text for images that already exist on the web or social media, but for actually describing, uh, say, in real time from a phone app, uh, scenes around a person who is blind, which is uh, often an application area described in the computer vision community. Um, one concern right now is that most of these vision to language technologies are trained on corpora of images taken by people who are sighted. So if you think of something like, you know, the Coco data set or, or ImageNet, you know, these are mostly images scraped from Flickr. Um, I think it's a, a safe assumption that these are largely high quality images taken by people with sight. Uh, whereas um, while many people who are blind or low vision do engage in photography, uh, on average, the quality um, of photographs uh, that they capture is very different than those of people with sight. So we did a study of VizWiz images and found that more than 80% of them had uh, serious issues around image framing, overexposure, underexposure, uh, blur. And so being able to actually train um, computer vision algorithms on this type of data is really important for being able to accurately serve the needs of this population. And so I think things like creating the VizWiz data set are really a, a step in the right direction. Uh, also similarly, I think uh, Google's project Euphonia, which, which was announced a couple of years ago, which aims to collect more speech data from people with speech differences is another example of a step in the right direction uh, because current automatic speech recognition algorithms are typically trained on, on people with typical speech patterns. So they do not work well for people with uh, conditions like uh, dysarthria, uh, deaf accent, um, et cetera. And so beginning to create these data sets and to make them uh, public, I think is, is very important. Mary, uh, as you know, you're on the Radical AI podcast, so you probably expect the question that's coming next. Um, something we like to ask all of our guests in an effort to co-create and define this radical AI term is, how do you define the word radical? And do you situate your work in the space of that definition? When I think of the word radical, I guess I think of, you know, ideas that are outside of the mainstream. Um, and so I think that two opinions that I hold that might be considered, you know, radical with respect to, to mainstream computer science. Uh, one is about, you know, who who is a computer scientist and who is in particular an, an AI uh, scientist. Um, I think, um, for example, you know, questions of, uh, you know, are only people who are developing new deep learning systems really doing real, quote unquote, real AI uh, versus are people who are considering, for example, these issues of, of responsible AI and ethics in AI also valued members of the AI community. Um, and of course, I would argue uh, to the latter, right, that 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 people in the responsible AI space are also AI researchers whose contributions are, are every bit as important um, as those who are on the forefront of advances in deep learning. Um, similarly, you know, it relates back to HCI, you know, who's considered a computer scientist. Um, I think some, uh, some people argue that HCI because of its interdisciplinary nature isn't part of computer science. Uh, but I think thinking about computers and thinking about AI in the absence of thinking about people and the people who use these systems um, is not a complete picture of computing. Um, so I would argue that that opinion might be slightly radical. 
I think my other uh, radical opinion is around the language we use to talk about AI. Frankly, I I am bothered by the, the terminology artificial intelligence. Um, and this goes back to my earlier point about setting expectations and how we communicate um, to the public at large about our work. You know, when uh, a layperson hears the term artificial intelligence, they think that we're talking about you know, what computer scientists would call artificial general intelligence, right? They think of something that is has a human-like intelligence, a semantic intelligence, whereas, you know, current trends in machine learning are all about, you know, pattern recognition and statistics and, you know, no semantic understanding and knowledge. And so the public is, you know, worried about, uh, you know, uh, hyper intelligence that's gonna, you know, conquer us and be our robot overlords. And I think that is that is not uh, really the imminent area of, of concern. And instead we should actually be more concerned about um, these uh, pattern-based de definitions of ML that lack semantics and that therefore result in this kind of um, inadvertent, uh, you know, bias, uh, and uh, ethical issues. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would, so I guess my radical position is that I wish we didn't have the term intelligence in, in AI because what computer scientists mean by intelligence and what regular people mean by intelligence is just not the same thing. This is probably also a good time to mention while we're talking about being radical that of course in this interview I'm speaking in my role as a individual person rather than as an official representative of uh, Microsoft. So of course all these opinions are my own. For folks uh, out there who are designing these just technologies in general or AI technologies specifically, do you have any advice about how they might be able to center disability studies more in their uh, design? Absolutely. So, uh, of course, you know, uh, from an, an HCI approach, uh, interacting with the target community at all stages of the design process in gathering requirements for what a technology should do, in building, you know, the data sets and models, in uh, testing um, and evaluating systems with end users, you know, encourage including people with disabilities uh, at all stages of that process is important. Um, but I think it's also important um, that we take the bigger picture view around expanding who is participating as technology creators and ensuring that people with disabilities are part of the teams uh, working on technology. Um, and that includes um, encouraging and uh, you know, mentoring and supporting the careers of more people with disabilities in uh, computer science and related disciplines. Um, I think there are wonderful programs like Access Computing from the University of Washington or the URMD grad cohort workshops from uh, the Computing Research Association that are uh, offer opportunities um, to uh, support and mentor and grow the careers of a more diverse set of computer scientists. And for listeners who are interested in this space and maybe want to get in touch with you or look into some of your work a little bit further, where's the best place for them to go for that? So the Ability Team's website is aka.ms slash msrability. And our website um, has the contact information for everyone on the team. It has our research articles, blog posts, podcasts, videos. Um, so I would really encourage people to check out aka.ms slash msrability.
Mary, thank you so much for coming on the show today and discussing all of this with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We again want to thank Meredith Rangel-Morris for this interview. And as usual, uh, Jess and I are going to break down a little bit of our thoughts and some of our learnings from this interview. And Jess, what, what are you thinking about? I learned so much from this interview, Dylan. I know I say that a lot, but I genuinely learned so much because I have actually not ever been exposed to ability or disability studies research, especially related to technology in any way before this interview. So I was just like taking vigorous notes the entire time that Meredith was talking. And I think that um, my immediate reaction is still uh, around this like catch 22 that Mary brought up um, partway through the interview where there is such a problem with trying to create data sets for these technologies to try to create accessible technologies and um, technologies that are helpful for um, differently abled communities. And the problem is that in order to get the data for those technologies, you have to find a way to collect it without infringing on the privacy of the people in these communities as well. And I'm, I'm still just, I'm struggling with that concept. And I, I loved the ideas that Mary brought up in the different projects that are going on, like the one uh, around VizWiz that some amazing scholars are working on, but I, I'm still just like wondering what to do with that. I'm sitting in that uh, uncomfortable space. What about it makes it uncomfortable to you? I think the fact that I don't see an obvious solution. I mean, that's, isn't that like the nature of like a catch 22 <laughs> is that like you, you kind of have to make a trade off somewhere. It's really hard to find a solution that's actually beneficial for everyone. <laughs> Yes, I guess that is the nature of a catch-22. <laughs> but I, I, part of part of my question is because I also have a similar, um, I, I guess I would say a fear about it and about data collection in general. And what really um, stood out to me around this concept of privacy was about um, that it's so hard to have anonymity in, in some of these um, data sets. So when she used the example of, um, you know, uh, someone having a particular disability within um, the Seattle metro area. And if there's only 50,000 people that have that, you know, based on overall ratios, and uh, Seattle has, you know, however many millions of people, then even that, right, like once you have that data set, you could actually trace it back to those individuals. Um, and part of this around privacy, it's, it's connected to privacy, but also connected to other areas of, of bias and our um, and by our, I guess, I mean, the United States socioeconomic system and healthcare system of using, you know, some of that identity or even some of, you know, the scores that an algorithm could create around someone's disability um, that then impacting the price that they might have to pay for healthcare, um, which would just further, you know, make that cycle worse. Um, and make it much harder for people to have access to affordable healthcare in a system that already has so many issues with people, especially people with chronic conditions or more irregular conditions that they need care for, getting the access and the, and the care that they need. 
Well, it's interesting because I remember, I think it must have been about three years ago, I saw this article come out about this uh, health insurance company that was partnering with Fitbit so that people could submit their health data from Fitbit to this company. And if, uh, I guess, assuming that they had a healthy lifestyle and that they were keeping up with their exercise on Fitbit and that they had good health ratings, a good heart rate, whatever it is that Fitbit um, measures for for humans, uh, that they then they could get good rates on their health insurance. And when I saw this article, I was thinking, oh, wow, it's actually like a, that's a pretty good idea. I, I don't know why they haven't thought of this earlier. And now after listening to Meredith talk about some of the concerns here, I'm thinking, oh, God, no, they should they should definitely not be pairing with Fitbit. That's awful, because now, especially since there's technologies that are coming out that can predict whether someone has a mental illness or a disability of some kind, that can become scary and really threatening very quickly, because if especially Especially if the people who use these technologies aren't aware of the ways in which they're being tracked and measured and the ways that their data about those measurements and about those classifications of themselves are being shared with third parties, be it insurance companies or not, that can get uh, really scary really fast. Yeah, you know, Jess, I'm really happy that you specified uh, Fitbit data for humans because really, I think <laughs> I think the real ethical concern here is what about that Fitbit data for, you know, animals? You're just saying this because you got a puppy recently. <laughs> I did. Your, your mind's on animals. <laughs> yeah, you know, for listeners, check out our Twitter for a picture of my very cute puppy. Um, but no, I mean, I think Jess, you and I were talking even like the other week. Uh, I think it came up on my phone that, um, who was it? It wasn't Apple. It was Google bought Fitbit. Yeah. And so there's also an element. Um, and obviously this episode wasn't necessarily <laughs> about uh, tracking that, but it, it does raise the concern around like who has this data. Right. And Mary's, you know, working for Microsoft um, and uh, I have great respect for um, the, you know, ethics of a lot of the teams that are working for Microsoft in terms of research. And also it falls uh, into the same pitfalls that a lot of other large corporations do um, around, you know, data protection, data management, because there's just a lot of data. Um, and it's, you know, similar with Google and with um, Apple and, and any of these large corporations that just have a lot of our data and just keep getting more. Um, you know, it's, it's the question that we've talked about a lot on the show is like, how can you ethically source that data and collect that data, which we've already talked about here, but then also the use of that data, um, which can be such a slippery slope, or at the very least, it can just be a bunch of really well-intentioned people creating well-intentioned algorithms that then harm people uh, that are already at the greatest risk of harm. Yeah, and we were literally talking about this earlier today, Dylan, right? That it's not necessarily that the data itself is bad or unethical or corrupt, and it's not necessarily that the algorithm itself is bad or unethical or corrupt, but you can take someone's well-meaning intention of let's say, for example, creating a technology where we take in user mouse clicks and we can determine whether or not they're likely to have Parkinson's disease or whatever it is that we're measuring. And that may seem like it has a positive impact on the community, but if you take that into practice, well, there might be some unintended consequences, like, for example, misidentifying someone and how that data and that information and that labeling is shared. And I mentioned to you earlier today, Dylan, that I have a problem with technologies like this because because they seek to classify humans in a way that is very, very quantitative. And they're trying to quantify something that is so inherently complex and granular, like a mental illness or a disability that cannot and should not ever be quantified. 
Absolutely. And that, that was part of uh, Mary's seven points, which were just absolutely brilliant. And I think that they have, you know, far reaching implications for the disability studies community and then also beyond um, to other communities or just even how we think about the, the nature of morality and ethics in how we design and deploy uh, AI technology. But specifically, one of the things that uh, stuck with me is this concept of expectation of AI. And we've talked about it a little bit. Um, and I know we talk about like folk theories around AI and, and other things like that. Um, but it's it's it just keeps coming up, right? It's like, what uh, what is the reality behind what AI can do and will do versus what are the stories that we tell ourselves about what AI can do and will do, especially on a societal level. And Mary brought up like the media um, and uh, you know, there can be real harms in us perpetuating some of these stories and narratives around the utopia or dystopia that AI is creating or has already created. It's already out there. That's either destroying our world or making it like completely better. Um, and it can be, you know, much more of a crutch than an actual, representation of what's going on in the world. And so I guess the, the bigger point around that is just like, how can we engage with those expectations with more reality, but also um, in a way that helps people? <laughs> For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe and rate and review the show on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. Catch our new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, Happy New Year and stay radical.